Art without limitation is no place for imagination. The triumph of art is the showcase of a mind's power to capture all the senses in two dimensions. In 4D, I can't see how an artist is artistic. This is no attack on realism, but a reminder of the reality of creation. Our brains need a framework to create something of frame worth. <laughs> <laughs> frame worth. That's, um, that's high level stuff right there. <laughs> Thank you. I did my best. Nice. I just came up with like five lines in isolation and then put them together. So there's yeah. no rhyme structure or anything, but. No, that's all I do. I managed. <laughs> I like it. Well done. Thank it you. It reminded me a little bit. I feel like you have internalized the spoken word, the spoken like word kind of Christian kids uh, <laughs> poetry tradition that you've yeah. been raised in. And it's good. Every poet needs to kind of mm-hmm. bear their, their upbringing on their sleeve. That was, a, that was a breath of fresh air. Thank you. Thank you. So I wrote that poem inspired by this week's question on how limitations affect storytelling, which is what we'll talk about first after I plug to you all of the other things that Solacine does. So Solacine is obviously a podcast imagining the ideal future that is beautiful, sustainable, and tactile. But we also have zines that we've created for our previous semesters, which are linked down below. And we started a love letter to all of you each week called Field Notes, where we observe things in the field of daily life and write them down, take pictures, take notes of them, and share them to you. So if you'd like to receive those, you can sign up down below in the link. Anything else? Yeah, we're on Instagram and TikTok, but if you're listening, you probably don't really care about those platforms. Yeah, they're to capture new people and then get them to delete their accounts. Yeah. So it's not a very lucrative business of Instagram, but it does the trick. So not only was that a very artistic and I would say insightful poem, but really articulate pitch this week Hmm. for you. I feel like you're not usually very good with the plug, so neither am I, but this week you were rattling through that. Because I've been working hard on it to make it the field notes to make the Instagram something worthwhile because before it felt slightly like I was doing it just to do it, but now I want to make them slightly more artistic. So I'm being a bit more careful in creating them. You could say you've accelerated your efforts. You could say that. If you said such a thing, it would lead really well into the first question for today's episode, which is how does our current cultural acceleration or how has it affected Storytelling. Mm-hmm. So what would you mean by cultural acceleration in air quotes? I think I just mean that everything is going so fast and every day it just keeps going faster. It feels like we're reaching the singularity <laughs> quicker and quicker. And I agree. Yeah, it's like, it's like when you look at every timeline mm-hmm. of every single thing. It's like population, movies made. Those are the two things, right? Words written. Words written. It's always just going to be... a a spike. Mm -hmm. So that's what we mean by acceleration. Yeah. So stories a hundred years ago, you'd write one, perhaps it would take a while to print it because you're using a printing press. Mm. And today you can write a story and it doesn't even need to be printed. It can all be digital and disseminated to millions of people in an instant. Yeah. It doesn't even have to be a story. It can be a tweet. It could be a tweet. So how has this impacted storytelling? I had a lot of thoughts on this. My first one that I wrote down was that it's atomized storytelling and it's almost disrespected stories in this kind of postmodern irreverence that we all have. So before postmodernism, so that's not super recent, but kind of recent, I feel like a story would be told and people would not instantly start critiquing it and tearing it apart. (laughs) But today, any narrative, any movie, every book that's written is instantly subject to an insane amount of scrutiny, which as humans, we're all flawed. So every story will have flaws, I imagine. That's a good point. And I think it's good to be mindful when you're consuming things, not to just consume and then be like, oh, shoot, that had a really racist undertone and that had a really aggressive message that perhaps we shouldn't be telling to our kids. But it shouldn't be instantly just picked apart into a million pieces, I don't think. Yeah, also, I would go one step further and say, along the lines of what I was talking about with audience members last week, that we feel the need to react in real time, not even just after the fact. Mm -hmm. We cast our judgments while watching it or while Mm -hmm. reading it, but not after. Um, Yeah. And sometimes even before reading it or before watching it. Like, I'm sure we can both think of a dozen movies that we have 
pretty set opinions on. This is probably not mm-hmm. a good uh, thing about us, but pretty set opinions on without ever having seen it. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. That was another note I took was the preconceived notions before you consume a story, but also the we don't give ourselves time to digest it. You have your opinion either during or immediately after, and then you don't really reassess it. Right. That's your favorite question to ask people once the last time you changed your mind, but we really don't do that very much because we don't change our minds. We mm. feel like it's almost a waste of time. Yeah. We trust our instincts better than our long-term ripened opinions of things. Ripened. That's a, that's a good allegory. You're thinking like a, talking like a poet already. <laughs> so would Thank you yeah. say, so you'd say obviously this is a bad thing that the acceleration has done to maybe not the stories themselves, but how they're received. Yeah, and the way that they're told also is impacted because they have to instantly capture attention and instantly make their mark. I feel like even 10, 15 years ago, you could watch a movie and it wasn't the norm for the first 10 minutes to be action-packed. Mm. The first 10 minutes of the movie would be pretty boring yeah. by today's standards. But most movies today, the first scene is like a world-ending catastrophe or something really dramatic that captures your attention. And I don't think it needs to be. Even when you're taught to write an essay now, it's like, make sure that first line is catchy or else people <laughs> yeah. will stop reading it. So I think that's how it's impacted storytelling. So you think there's not much room for the slow burn anymore? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it's especially obvious with movies, but also you talked about writing. That example came to my mind as well. But even when you watch something like Rocky, mm-hmm. which was a huge movie for its time, and you're like, this wouldn't get made in this way today. No way. Yeah, there's entire first movies of series that are just completely different like boring by today's standards no one would want a second one made Mm. let alone the rocky empire yeah (laughs) the rocky mountain yeah um yeah i was thinking that with with essays and writing in middle school and high school when they would say first line no it's really got to grab them it's really got to be a hook it's got to be a fact it's got to be a but even so even like if you ever did creating (laughs) right creative writing in class which Mm -hmm. um we didn't do so often but when you did do it they would be like first line has to be something like I was 16 the day it happened. Yeah. And, and it's like, this isn't good writing. I, I know there's <laughs> there's a skill to a good first line and a good first paragraph and all these yeah. things, but it's really the, I mean, it's well chronicled in um, journalism as well. The clickbait, clickbaitification of <laughs> art or writing. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, I don't like that at all. Mm-hmm. You said we already have the opinions made before we go in. But I thought a way that this acceleration has impacted storytelling is the way that we converse about stories. I feel like today, if you say to someone, hey, I found this new artist, odds are they've heard of them, Mm. formed their own opinion of them, and the conversation almost stops there. Oh yeah, I heard of them too. Yeah, no. But like, there's no (laughs) introducing something new to anyone because we've considered everything is what I said. That's really We've considered... Every movie, every genre, you can't just... It's not an easy conversation the way it used to be, I think. And I don't know how to stop that besides stop overexposing ourselves to so much. Yeah. Because it's hard to almost... It's this dichotomy. You can only build your identity based on external things, but it's almost like you can't because everyone knows it all. So you have to be really extreme in order to build your identity, if that makes sense. Well, I think what's really wonderful is... Like I've said before, my goal on the podcast, my goal is to know less about movies mm-hmm. before they come out and movies in production and movies I haven't seen and things like this. But um, it, it can be a nice thing to almost not feign ignorance, but like if someone says, oh, have you heard of this band? And mm-hmm. you just know the name and maybe yeah. the name of one of their albums. If you just say, no, no, yeah. I've never heard of them. Because then that person, presumably they have an enthusiasm for it, mm-hmm. will you know, share it to you and introduce it to you in a way that would make you actually want to listen to it. Yeah, it's a way to have a more open mind. Yeah, I feel like it's rare that we get sold things anymore. I mean, sold Mm -hmm. in a nice way from our friends or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, have you seen this restaurant? That's diverging a little bit from the storytelling semester, but that um, idea of our own perception in this web of ever-increasing, like Mm -hmm. accelerating outward, like the universe culture that we have now, Mm -hmm. it can be nice to just be like, no, I don't know that. Yeah. For sure. I'd, tell me about it. <laughs> I like this. I like this idea because it's a good way to build relationships because art is what we are most attached to, most identify with is our stories that we like consuming. So yeah, let someone be excited about it. Even if you've, 
already decided that you're not a big Harry Potter fan, let them tell you. They might convert you to Harry Potter or whatever it may be. Mm. Uh, one of the lines in my poem was, everybody's an artist, but no one's artistic or something along those lines. Okay. And this, I thought, fit well into this question, but it was mainly an observation you and I had this weekend while out at a tourist destination of everyone taking pictures. And we were trying to f- articulate how it made us feel <laughs> because it's challenging because I would in air quotes, consider myself a photographer because it was my passion for like years and years and years. We'd go out every day, both you and I would go and take pictures for hours. It was all we, it was our only hobby for a long (laughs) time. So it's like, I'm still not a professional photographer. I wouldn't like put it in my Instagram bio, but I like taking pictures. I have equipment. It's something that I like to set out and do. But these people who are at tourist destinations, at sanctuaries of spirituality yeah or just sanctuaries of nature and they have their phone they're taking selfies doesn't make me feel nice no but i was trying to figure out why that is and how it related to this week's episode because i felt like there was a connection and this is how i feel like it is we all feel like we're an artist because it's almost like we were told we're all artists and i really believe we all have a creative bone in us and we need to be creative but we don't know how to harness it in a way that is beneficial to society. So we all almost take just the the acts of like doing the thing. So the average person would say, I'm a photographer, and they take photos with their phone and they post them on Instagram, but they don't actually like dive into it and like make their own style or learn about the craft. And I feel like People should be encouraged to, if that's what you like, then like do it. Mm. Don't just, I don't know what the word is I'm looking for. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I i don't know if they're so connected, like stories and would you say tourist culture or tourist behavior? Yeah. But perhaps you're onto something there. I, I like, I was trying and trying because I know there's something there, but I couldn't articulate it. I, I'll articulate what I think is, is storyable <laughs> about my thoughts. And it was that the reason I feel bad about being in such destinations where everyone's taking a picture is that I can't criticize these things, even though I do think it's inappropriate and certain, mm-hmm. as you say, spiritual landmarks, because I'm essentially doing the same thing, which is just yeah. making a, a, a circus show of what was built in mm-hmm. earnest as a church or as a temple or as a monument or something. Mm-hmm. And we're just coming from all over to... To look at it and be inspired by it. Yeah, to look at it. I mean, even if you're not taking a picture of it, you're still one of the tourists. So I would say in terms of like storytelling, it relates to maybe authenticity and the way that we view the world as kind of, um, it's hard to say, but like, it's like when you go to a tourist destination, you are seeing a place from a movie. It's like you feel like you're walking around a set, not a part of the real world. It's like you're consuming it. Yeah. I feel like that's what I was trying to get at. We're slowly building the thought. But (laughs) it's like you're consuming it. When you're there, you're taking a picture. Or you and I were having ideas with the podcast or with the ideal future inspired by this. And I feel like that's almost the difference of you have to, like, prepare your mindset before going into these situations. And I feel like if everyone did so, the space would feel slightly less hollow when you're in it. So, like, you're going to a monument. Right now, it feels hollow. I don't like the feeling of being amongst a bunch of tourists, myself being one of them. Like, it's always a negative vibe. Like, I don't know how to describe it other than that. But if everyone was there to try and take inspiration and, like, really feel what the purpose of the monument is. Like, monuments are there to tell a story, to remind you of something, not just to be aesthetic. And, like... People through all of history, all the great authors and painters took inspiration from nature and from events and everything. They did so in a way that I imagine if it was a room full of the best artists, you wouldn't feel that negative energy. Yeah. Because it wasn't like a greed. It was just like a reverence. Greed is a, is an interesting word to use for it. I think <laughs> we should... I'm having... Uh, no, I, I'm not saying it's a bad word. I'm saying yeah. It's a, that's an interesting angle. I think we should talk about this next week because I'm having trouble formulating my thoughts. But we could talk about the narrative of architecture mm-hmm. rather than um, maybe just <laughs> lumping storytelling and X 
um, together mm-hmm. as a question, like we've done previous <laughs> weeks. Maybe we could form a question like, how has story been removed from uh, from places, from architecture? Mm-hmm. Because that's what I think is most interesting. Like specifically, we went to a church, mm-hmm. is what it was, and it was built to be a church, not to be uh, as circus exhibit basically Mm -hmm. so that's what i think we can talk about next week like the function the 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 story um the story of the place Mm -hmm. yeah we can talk about that next week okay i like that but also with regards to acceleration what i was most focused on this week was nostalgia and Mm. i don't know why i mentioned it to you um in passing but the upcoming oh the barbie movie the barbie movie yeah that has just been on my mind really um really a lot because Again, this is like breaking the thing that I don't want to know a lot about movies, but <laughs> just the idea of movies that are just kind of commodified nostalgia. And I'm not mm-hmm. saying this is that. It's just that's what kind of provoked my thought because it, it's probably going to be a good movie judging mm-hmm. by who's like around it. But yeah, I think this is something that hasn't really been around since prior to like late stage capitalism or whatever you want mm-hmm. to call these currents. Um these current times, yeah, these current economic exploits that goes on with the big media content companies. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was thinking also about Scooby Doo, the two thousands movies, mm-hmm. and I told you about that. I said this is gonna that's gonna be like a reference point for the early two thousands. Mm-hmm. People who weren't around or weren't conscious enough. I mean, we were only like four, I think, when the first movie came out. So mm-hmm. people like us will be like, we'll, we'll, we'll watch the first Scooby Doo live action movie and think wow, that was those times. Looks mm-hmm. great. And I was really wondering, um, and every like era has these times. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, there's Nirvana in the 90s or like there's the 80s um, high school movies. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that. And I was like, what is going to be this time? Like what is going to be like the time capsule for this time? Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if this is really pertaining to cultural acceleration or more like fragmentation. But And I know this is not an original thought, but I feel like it's it's hard to find those things because of the way that culture is now like i don't think there mm-hmm. will be a scooby-doo for 2022 is what i'm saying yeah i've never watched a movie in the last 10 years that i was like yeah this captures the moment yeah at all really mm. my guess was that it would be the kind of bad movies by our estimation from netflix like she's the no wait she's all that so wait i don't remember why we i don't know why we keep mentioning this movie on the podcast no but i was like these bad movies that yeah. like we really hate but they were trying to capture the phone culture and the yeah, memes yeah. and like they didn't do a good job of it. But I feel like that's the closest thing to a time capsule of yeah. today. That I mean, we'll have. it's like a, it's a point that brings in a lot of different things about the industry because the stories of 2022 probably just aren't being told by Warner Bros and Disney. They're being told on TikTok like that will mm-hmm. be the time capsule rather than yeah. a movie by Netflix featuring Addison Rae. It's just her videos. Like, yeah, that, that's, that's true, what it would be actually. most likely. But also there's the fact that all of those videos, all of TikTok, all of young culture now, and people would say it was always the case, but I think it's it's accelerated now, is in reference to previous um, eras. Mm-hmm. So I think that's like what I'm talking about with the commodification of nostalgia, mm-hmm. where it feels so cynical, where it's like, now it's time for these clothes to come back. Now it's time for these clothes to come back. But it's like the kids are actually saying that now. Mm-hmm. They're not just doing like living it out like, it's a conscious thought mm-hmm. in terms of the, the cycle of it. Yeah. I don't know sure. about the storytelling of that. But. Yeah. Ooh, that gives me an idea for a question for next week. The story that clothes tell. I won't go too, in, too much into it next week because obviously we'll have a fashion series yeah. sometime kind of soon. But I still would like <laughs> to talk about it. And I also had two more points for this question. As I said, I had a lot of questions and but, ideas. Let me just finish the... the <laughs> the idea of teens living in nostalgia more so than before. Because I remember an early um, observation that we made like when we'd not known each other for very long was Mm -hmm. we were sitting around a campfire or sitting with other young people. Mm -hmm. And the conversation was kind of lull. It was like not really much going on, just small talk until people started immediately connecting and bonding over um, shows, cartoons they used to watch. Mm -hmm. And we were like, it's funny because it feels like grown-ups used to reminisce mm-hmm. but now it's like the the age for reminiscing has just gone lower and lower that was like one of the first times we ever talked yeah i know and i think <laughs> it might be because our shared experiences um like we share less and less experiences so mm-hmm. really all we have in common now with people our age is 
when we both used to watch Disney mm. or whatever. But I think that's really interesting. Or another example I remember is in university, like the parties that used to happen, they were always playing old music. And I don't mm. mean like really old, like classics. I mean, like Hannah Montana. Mm-hmm. And it was just in an ironic way, but it was kind of funny. And it was mostly just because that's probably all the music they shared, because it's mm-hmm. unlikely now that everyone at the party would listen to similar stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. It's interesting to think about how adults used to reminisce. And now it's just 16 yeah. year olds sitting on the campfire being like, oh, back in my day, and we watched SpongeBob. You watched yeah. SpongeBob? That's what I'm talking about. It's, it's very yeah. weird. Isn't I mean, we weird? do it on the podcast. Yeah, we I'm not do saying it. we're apart from it. I'm saying yeah. we're, we're part of it, and that's what's bizarre. For sure. So I said at the very beginning, I feel like we're too angry or cynical about films, but or I say films, stories. And I think it's good to be critical, but also it means that when something does arise, a movement, a narrative arises that is beneficial to society. It's like the climate change trend like a year or two ago when everyone was talking about it and actually passionate about it. Then all of a sudden it just drops off because things are too fast. That was like my first thought about the acceleration that you could have a really great film about climate change come about. Yeah. Like you could have the B movie, but you could have Don't Look Up. And they just like, they stay for such a short amount of time that they don't actually have an impact the yeah. way the stories used to. Stories would be around for hundreds of years. They'd evolve very slowly to really capture the essence of the human experience. Mm. And then they last. But because they don't have time to shift and evolve in the like most basic sense of the word stories are discarded instead of evolving and staying and i don't like that and then my final thought is that we have a fear of making a story that's too niche or too inaccessible or local because they won't sell so you're writing a book and you say well i can't just write this with a bunch of really specific references to my hometown because no one's going to get them the way that I feel like stories used to be not so afraid of being niche, but not niche in the way that like marketing should be find your niche, like yeah. niche in the way of only like, appealing to a small demographic. Mm-hmm. Now everything has to have as broad appeal as possible. Yeah, for sure. And I don't think that's super good for art. No, I agree. I mean, even just look at cinemas. I had this as a point for the next question, actually, which maybe we should um, switch to, which was the impacts of limitations on storytelling. So mm-hmm. how I think it was like how limitations help storytelling, but I also talked about how they can damage storytelling. Like the first limitation that comes to mind, obviously, is resources, budget, mm-hmm. constraints. Time. Yeah, time, of course. So I was thinking about how, about how movies have such big budgets now and mm-hmm. how that tends to drown out the smaller, um, more personal, more human stories even from cinemas. And so mm-hmm. that it's like... I feel like smaller budget movies tend to touch more on the human condition rather than like tricking everyone or catching everyone's eye with fireworks and snap, crackle, pop like effects and things like this. Yeah. You know, when you go see a smaller film, typically it won't have the money for those things. And so Mm -hmm. it has to focus on, I don't know, the characters, Mm. things like this. Yeah. I, for some reason, the film that comes to mind, you and I kind of recently watched 400 Blows. Is that what it's called? Yeah. 400 Blows. And we watched it and then immediately like, I was just like, what was, what was the point of that? Like it would just, I still don't understand that movie. Like we watched it and I've really tried to digest it, but I can't, but there's no movie that's going to be undigestible made today mm. because well, or not made with a, today. Not with a big budget. Yeah. Like in cinemas and this movie's famous and like yeah, lots yeah. of people have watched it. That wouldn't happen today because it would just be, even if everybody watched if Disney made 400 blows today or, you know, the likes of like a super niche experience film, people would just disregard it and then move on to the next thing. But because it's been around so long and people have had the time to watch it, discuss it, it has staying power. And yeah, I had a lot about the budgets and the Disney's because it's just. Okay, let's talk about it. Like. Let's hash out the Disney, the Disney budgets. the thing is like yeah because they have such big budgets and such like no limitations yeah i feel like it's not even art anymore it's just a spectacle it's like a fireworks display as you said it's just something that people experience wow and then like but it doesn't impact them no because it doesn't have to yeah like 
but with the small budget movies, it has to impact you on an emotional, spiritual. Or it has to try anyway. Yeah, like that's, the, that's the key thing. Like it should try. Mm-hmm. And I'm also not exactly opposed to what Scorsese infamously called um, the amusement park movies. Mm-hmm. Like we we both enjoyed Tenet. Yeah. And that was the pretty much the epitome of just the experience, just like <laughs> crazy. Wow, what's going on? Big budget. <laughs> and I think that's partially what cinemas are for. Yeah, I think so too. But it can't be just that. Like the only yeah. movies showing today when you go to the cinemas are a bunch of movies like that, a bunch of really yeah. bright, like yellow movies. <laughs> but it's like, I want a mixture. I want to feel something. I want to cry. I want to be like, wow, that soundtrack was incredible. I don't want to just be the best of the best of the best all put together because then... Highlight reel movies. Yeah. That's another word for it, maybe. It's not ideal. It's not solo scene. <laughs> another thought I was thinking with the, with the budgets is that it's not... Like, it's not like expensive movies are inherently bad. That doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Like, they should be inherently better, but mm-hmm. that they're not because they can't take as many risks. Mm-hmm. So they have to go safe. They have to get that broad appeal. But sometimes one slips through the cracks where you're like, how did this get made? Yeah. Lord of the Rings is a, is a good mm-hmm. example because um, the trilogy or being filmed at once and being huge budget and really long shoots and mm-hmm. on location. And so many practical effects. And you watch the making of video for those movies and it's like, <laughs> who allowed this? Who greenlit this? Yeah. Like, thank you, whoever allowed this. Yeah. You, you get the sense that it wouldn't be today. I mean, Dune is another good example because that's along mm-hmm. the same lines. But you could also feel in that movie that there were certain... Um, Places that they held back because of pla- the budget. Yeah, well, yeah. Not the budget in like a... Because of the appeal. It's like yeah. we, we couldn't go really weird with it mm-hmm. because... You know, so there still had to be these blockbuster trappings, and even the way the movies are packaged and trailers and posters and casting and all this, it it has to make it seem as no, this is just a blockbuster. This is cool. It's a it's a desert. (laughs) It's like Star Wars. Yeah, it's it's the exact same as Star Wars, and like a little bit of Avengers with. (laughs) Don't worry about it. It's not. It's nothing crazy. Um, Another limit I was thinking about. I've been thinking about a lot is like the artifice of our lives, which Celestine touches on very very often. Um, Just the fact that it's like. We never really interact with death or mm-hmm. danger or violence or jealousy or like un, unimpinged emotion. Like we're, mm-hmm. we kind of stra- stay away from the edges of ex- the human experience like that. We're just mm-hmm. mostly in the safe, air-conditioned middle of it. Mm-hmm. And really the edges are where all good stories are told. Mm-hmm. So it's like two things. we I don't think we relate as well to old stories about those things because mm-hmm. they were told by people who lived different lives and had utterly different minds to us. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't even have to be that long ago. Um, no, and true. another thing, we don't write stories like that very often either. Weird example I have for this is, do you remember the Disney Channel show Ant Farm? Yes. It was like these special gifted kids going to school and they each had like a natural talent. Anyway, there was one episode where there was this one kid who was, he was young, but he was like a rapper or like an inspiring rapper. Do you remember it? Yeah. And they were like, oh, wow, he's so um, rough and tumble and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And then we learned that actually he was just pretending to be from the streets, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. He had a suburban middle class upbringing. Mm-hmm. So he was lying about everything in his songs. Yeah. And it was like, why would he do that? It's because the suburban middle class upbringing and life in general doesn't give you anything to rap about doesn't tend to <laughs> such a strange example no but it's true though right it's like this yeah this coziness that we feel mm-hmm. like we've been talking recently that maybe we should live on a boat yeah just because it's what the challenge the adventure challenge adventure yeah, yeah. Uh, one thing that i was thinking is i feel like limits on storytelling are what separate it from reality because it's like if you were completely unlimited with immersion everything mm. it would just be real life yeah and real life is more crazy than any film you could ever watch or any piece of art you could ever consume but it's like that's the line like if you have no limits if you're just going to build disney world basically and let the people walk around in it nothing's ever going to it's not art anymore it's just life yeah but i feel like yeah when you're constrained to the roof of the sistine chapel or Mm. you're constrained to like Hemingway trying to write as concisely as possible, or you or often a, or a rhyme scheme. Even. It's yeah, like you you bear that artifice proudly. Of yeah. course, that's not how people talk. Like mm-hmm. with musicals, everyone says like, 
oh, how, why, do they, why are they always busting out in song? It doesn't make any sense. It's mm -hmm. like, because it's a musical. That's the, right. that's the art of it. Like, yeah. um, I'm thinking also about practical effects, like The Wizard of Oz is a really cool movie, and it just looks like it was on a soundstage. Yeah. It doesn't look like she was in Oz, really. Mm -hmm. But that's part of the, the beauty of it, or a, right. big, a big part of it, I think. Yeah. And another thing is that when we are trying to create art ourselves, this is bringing it from the other end, like as artists, as people, trying to tell a story, trying to process an experience through art, as a lot of people do. When we tell ourselves that we have no limits, and I know this is like counterintuitive because it's not good to be like self-limiting, limiting beliefs, <laughs> all that stuff. But I think when we tell ourselves, no, you can do anything you, you set your mind to, like you can do anything, there's no limits. That's almost terrifying for us, if that makes sense. And I feel like you're going to run into disappointment when you try for a year to write the next Pantheon and you can't because you're like, but I'm limitless, like I'm a limitless being. So I feel like if you perhaps said, I'm going to write for a year and try and come up with three deities for my Pantheon. <laughs> and strange example. <laughs> I don't know why it came to mind. And then you like achieve that within the year. And then I feel like within the year, because you gave yourself that limit of only three, maybe you'd have a lot of other ideas that you can then go on to add to and so on. And I think, yeah, limits help us. There's this psychological principle called the paralysis of choice, which we all experience in the daily of trying to come up with a meal for supper, trying to come up with what book to read next, what show to watch on Netflix. You're just paralyzed by how much choice you have, but setting restrictions is helpful in creating the art or creating the decision. And we need to remember that and not think it's a bad thing or like a limiting a limitation that we're putting on ourselves because it's a limit but not a limitation we'll say yeah it's a boundary yeah i have a thought on that note which is like our limitation as in our underexposure to what i will call classics mm -hmm. and i don't just mean classics like dusty really good books there's mm -hmm. some really new good books mm -hmm. and really new good films and i'm not like a, a snob when it comes to the age of things i don't think that makes any sense in mm -hmm. fact i think that's part of the problem but um in that people just assume that if something is classics meaning they're like yeah it's really good but it's probably really old mm -hmm. it's like i think we should induct more recent things in there uh, more regularly if they really are classics that is mm -hmm. um but i was thinking about how recently i as i mentioned on this week's field notes i kind of mm -hmm. pledged myself to writing something a longer story than i usually do and in doing so i was recognizing the fact that pretty much whatever you read you will write like some amalgamation of that it's like a hot dog where they throw in a bunch of different meats and it comes out as a new pink color. It's ne yeah. a, never, a never before seen shade. Yeah, this is not a vegan podcast for anyone no, wondering. No. So it's like, um, <laughs> or whatever music you're listening to, if you're a musician, most likely the stuff mm. that you create will just be a, a blend of that. Yeah. So it's like... It's a smoothie. Yeah. If we read really good stories, we'll also tell them. But I was thinking that, as you said, with the paralysis of choice, it's like, there's a lot of classics. Mm -hmm. So I pretty much just set myself a reading list of 10. Mm -hmm. And I think that number, making it finite and small and being able to fit on a shelf is really, really helpful in a way. Mm -hmm. I think, okay, this maybe go way back to my idea of everyone's an artist, but no one's artistic, is that we're not feeding ourselves the way that yeah, I feel like a true about. artist would feed themselves. Feeding. We're just consuming snippets on TikTok, which is like, the highlights of the highlights, mm -hmm. like you're hearing this really famous Debussy song, you're seeing the best paintings ever, and you feel like you're feeding yourself, but it's very artificial because you're not feeding yourself. It's just the macros. You're not getting your micros. Wow. Yeah. Look at you go today. Thank you. Um, that's, okay, this is, <laughs> this is the example I was going to give, is that I set myself the goal like two months ago to be more articulate and expand my vocabulary and also get better at spelling because I'm just really <laughs> bad at spelling and writing. And I was like, there's no reason for me to. I don't want to be a writer, but it's just something I want. And so I've started reading more and not just the classics like I was my whole life. I would just read like the best of the best. Mm. Now I'm reading some deeper cuts, some, cuts yeah. but still some classics, some great works, I suppose. And I find it's helping as you've commented today at my allegories and my Metaphors are improving. Nice. I'm proof. 
Um, <laughs> the final thought about limitations is a bit of a stretch with the word, but it's just the limitations meaning our lack of belief in the stories that we read. Mm-hmm. I was reading recently about the ancient Greeks, like the festivals and the inductions and the rite of passages that they used to have. And it was, for the most part, as I talked about on Field Notes two weeks ago, I think, um, a lot more um, spiritual than we would often kind of project onto ancient Greece. Like we think of them as the utmost in rationalism and Mm -hmm. philosophy and almost like these enlightened beings that I think we've made them out to be historically. Mm -hmm. When in reality, there was a lot of like cults and rituals and um, trying to expand their consciousness in different ways and like crazy Mm -hmm. stuff like this. And, but it was all based off kind of reliving, reenacting, and responding to the stories of mm-hmm. their gods, which we take as just mythology. It's mm-hmm. like, well, this is really helpful mythology. And sometimes we really do think about it and think about how Narcissus is relevant today. And sometimes, we, you know, we really like analyze it, but we don't often believe it. And I don't mm-hmm. even mean this, like, this is also stretching the word belief, but it doesn't have to be from like a really... It can be a secular form of belief, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. It's like really like immerse yourself in it. Like what you were talking about with Alexander the Great, where he went to Troy. Mm-hmm. Like he believed in that story. He believed mm-hmm. in what it was. And I feel like today we read things like we or we watch things from a really shallow perspective and we don't mm-hmm. like believe it. We mm-hmm. don't embody it. Yeah, you don't have to believe that it's really happening. Like that'd be Weird if you really thought well, that it would be religious, yeah. Middle Earth was real and the yeah. hobbits were. Lord of the actually, Rings is a good example. Yeah, but there's somewhere in between of like believing it as a religion and just consuming it. Believing it. Yeah. Believing I'm, it. I can do it. Believe in them. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. that. So speaking of belief, <laughs> maybe you believe in the organism of the week today. Oh. Here it is. What is that? An alien? Plankton? You got it. Immediately. So the organism of the week for this week is the copepod, which is not an organism, but a big group of organisms. Okay. And the reason I chose it for our storytelling semester is because of our favorite villain of all time. Plankton. Sheldon J. Plankton from SpongeBob. Yes. So copepods are a group of small crustaceans found pretty much in every body of water. Mm-hmm. The ones that are in seawaters are called planktonic. Okay. And for some reason, like I thought that plankton was an organism. Okay. But it's a group of organisms. Yes. Um, there we go. Plankton mostly just means tiny organisms that can't propel themselves through a current. So they just go with the flow. Yeah, be that air or be that water. So usually, mm-hmm. of course, they're very small. Yeah, there isn't like any more defining characteristic than that. They're yeah. just defined by their niche and their lack of mobility. Why are they often portrayed as green? So I drew this one with the green line, partially so that you would get the plankton connection. It's true. And partially because they do have like a greenish, or the one that I was drawing anyway, does have a greenish mm-hmm. tinge to it. Like I say, there's thousands of these species of coke pods, over 13,000 species actually. Does it involve phytoplankton, which absorb carbon through photosynthesis? They eat phytoplankton. The so maybe that's where they get the greenish tinge. So that's some kind of, I see. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, there's 10 orders of these copepods. They're usually one to two millimeters long. And mostly I wanted to talk about the real plankton. from The plankton? Yeah, the, the Sheldon plankton. Mm-hmm. Um, he has the cyclops eye mm-hmm. as it's present in a lot of these organisms. And what do you think about plankton He's- as a villain? One of the best villains ever. Yes. So multidimensional. Right. Because sometimes he's just good. Like okay. he just is helpful sometimes. Mm. And he's truly evil. Like he wants to take down Mr. Krabs and SpongeBob and all all associates. Yeah. But he's funny. He's True. very committed to his cause. I mean, yeah. he has the whole chum bucket and the scheme to take over all of Bikini Bottom. Like mm-hmm. he's Perhaps the best villain ever. What's your favorite plankton story or moment or scheme? Ooh, that's a hard one. He's had a lot of schemes over the years so to many try schemes. and achieve his goal of stealing the Krabby Patty formula. I, it's so hard because there's so many. But the one where he achieves it, like he gets the formula and makes it, but then it's still a joke. Like, mm. So he breaks into the vault, like Mr. Krabs was out of town or something. And then he gets it home and he's like, yes, I've done it. And everyone's like, no, he got the formula. 
but then he makes it and it still turns out to make everyone sick. Sad. Yeah. I have, I'm realizing as I think now that the plankton episodes were mostly my favorite episodes. Mm-hmm. Like I love imitation crabs. Oh my gosh. Where there's the robot Mr. Krabs. Yeah. Um, and we still quote that one to this day. But I also love the episode where he convinces SpongeBob or like teaches him to be assertive, <laughs> to be a bully on the beach. Yeah. And when SpongeBob takes the volleyball and like squeezing it until it pops, <laughs> I really like that. I like when he walks into the chum bucket and he's like, this is my lab. And it's just a Labrador. Yeah. And then he says, this is my laboratory. And that's the real laboratory. Mm-hmm. Some fun facts about Sheldon J. Plankton. He is afraid of whales. So he, watch out, Pearl. Yeah. He shares a birthday with Mr. Krabs. Okay. And on his degree, it says that he majored in tank driving. <laughs> so really, really committed, as you say, to, to just evilness. Yeah. But I thought for next week, we could talk about what makes a good villain. Okay. That's good. Obviously, we've outlined some things already. but. Mm-hmm. And for the final question on this week's episode, it was our first listener-inspired question, perhaps. Yeah. And it's, what's up with music and storytelling? And, like, how does music tell a story? So I had a quote. It says, music, even in its most abstract and indescribable forms, is always at the intersection of two narratives, that of its composer and its listener. So I thought that's the way that we could kind of Mm. bring it home into storytelling. Also, I just wrote that myself, so... It was my quote. Who are you? <laughs> so I just wanted to make it sound like a Wikipedia style. Good job. Quote kind of. Yeah. It'll be like laid over a picture of someone listening to music. Yeah, yeah exactly. Or but I think also I'll, I'll like add on to my own quote. There's the there's the listener, there's the composer, and when music is on a mass scale, it's also telling the story of the culture, the culture, the society. I like it. So my first thought is I used to be obsessed with lyrics when it comes to songs, and I really thought that that was the only important part of a song that you couldn't just have a song with nonsense lyrics you have or to anything listen like that. To the lyrics. Yeah, I was like, no, like you can't be listening to that. It'll like hurt your brain. But I realized it's a lot more, a lot less black and white. That lyrics are important, but they're not all that music is. And I probably should have realized that. I mean, I did ballet, so I very much had the artistic, the classical music. Instrumentals. Yeah, and then I did piano, which they would never, my piano teacher would never let me do pop music. She would only do these weird, not classics, but not pop, just these weird songs that were written to teach you piano. Yeah. Which probably is why I don't like playing piano. <laughs> because I, for like 10 years, only was allowed to play these strange, like, we called like space and time. or just like weird, <laughs> not from movies, not from anything. Um, and then obviously, growing up in church, a lot of church music all meanings of the word, hymns, hill songs, what have you. And so because of that, I think I was obsessed with lyrics. And also from my personal experience, I think that music is the most spiritual of art forms Mm. because every religion, not every religion, but most religions have scriptures, texts, foundational stories. And you think, well, those are obviously the most important part of the religions. But I feel like the songs almost do something a step further in that they capture the essence, the emotion of the faith, whatever it is, better than a scripture ever could. Yeah. And I was like trying to rank our forms in terms of spirituality and immersion. And movies, I put at the top of immersion because they have the most devices, most instruments at their disposal. Because it's like they literally can be a whole soundtrack with lyrics, instruments, and everything, plus visuals, plus narrative. But stories, I think, or music, I mean, I think is the best when it comes to facilitating spiritual experience. <laughs> no, I agree. Yeah. Um, <laughs> along this note, because I think that instrumental music is it's my favorite type of music. I it's like incredible. When, I like when lyric doesn't get in the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had this this question. It was mostly like tongue in cheek, but it's, I wrote, "What if we leave the poetry to the poets?" <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> because I feel like I mean I'm not really meaning this because there are some some beautiful songs with really nice lyrics that are of course um, aided by the the melodies that they're with or the instruments. Mm-hmm. But also, it seems like poetry has gone out the window. Most people can't name probably a living poet. Mm-hmm. And it would be nice if that would return. And I feel like 
if if it kind of got went out of there mm -hmm. went back into the, just the page that would be yeah it. that's to, interesting to some extent we took it out of yeah I was thinking that music also relies more on poetic devices than poems do they rely on repetition metaphor allegory yeah good music more than poems do because without all of these devices it's a song just wouldn't be a song but it's so much more and what I was saying with like the amount of instruments and devices at their disposal compared to writing like writing you only have words but when you're writing a song you have thousands of instruments and noises that you can play with which is really cool in a way that no other art form really has so many so much variety so much dimension you're painting you can have any color under the sun but you can still only have really the two dimensions mm. and sculptures it's like you still only have the three dimensions dimensions but songs are just like limitless yeah, yeah i was also thinking about how the availability of music has changed it in the mm -hmm. world and i had this example of like pre-internet pre-cds even pre anything mm -hmm. like that if i really liked a song mm -hmm. let's say i'd heard it once when i was growing up and it was really nice like a piano song and then you um heard about this and you learned it on the piano and played it for me that would be a very very nice gesture mm -hmm. like serenading someone but now it's like if you played a song that i'd really like, be like oh that's cool yeah that's nice but i could listen to it whenever i want mm -hmm. so it kind of takes it from essentially a sacred thing which mm -hmm. was music to i won't say profane although often it is profane i guess today but just uh commonplace mm -hmm. like it, it makes it a lot less worthy mm -hmm. valuable even yeah and i think like a solution for this thinking solacini is to get rid of streaming mm -hmm. because streaming music is like it's famously really awful for the artists anyway mm -hmm. so we just didn't have that yeah it's an interesting thought because it feels anti-consumer to cut down the accessibility of songs but it's like the people behind the songs aren't just companies they're people who have passions and who have yeah worked on these skills but i was thinking with with music that it's not it's not like a human right it's mm -hmm. not like charging for water yeah like these are things that people have made and you know if mm -hmm. they want that to be their profession then they deserve to get paid for it kind mm -hmm. of yeah i agree what do you think is the most memorable form of storytelling for me yeah visual you're a visual guy yeah i was trying to decide and I feel like music might be for me because I don't get visuals stuck in my head the way that I get songs stuck in my head. And I know that some people do get visuals stuck in their head and some people get like a verse stuck in their head. But for me, I think it is music. And I feel like it's interesting because we don't treat it, I mean, we keep coming back to that with that reverence that it should considering how memorable it is. It's how like, powerful. Yeah, we're just listening to a thousand songs a day between adverts and background music and stores and background music and movies and we don't treat it with the fact that hey 10 of these are going to get stuck in your head it could be a mechanism for good mm. it also often is tied to visual for most people like mm -hmm. so many of the best composers of today like i said people can't name a living poet but mm -hmm. they probably can name a living composer because mm -hmm. he would work on a film mm -hmm. that they really like so so many of our favorite songs are like tied to visuals anyway even things that weren't in movies you think of the music video or you think of the, I album, think anyway, cover. the album cover or visually where i was when i first heard it or like them performing it or something mm -hmm. like that and i also think this is a little bit off topic but the way that we classify music shapes the individual and the mass opinion of it so like for instance what i was talking about with the classics in books um applies to classical music also where it's like oh it's classical that means it's old mm -hmm. but why does music like that ha doesn't have to be old Mm -hmm. or oh it's pop music that means it's popular it's yeah. like there's a lot of pop that is not popular at all so mm -hmm. i think the way we like the genres on these are a bit weird sometimes yeah a bit limiting limiting yeah my final thought of the week is what along the lines of this question is how powerful a soundtrack can be in a film because you can have the best film ever and the soundtrack is neutral but if the soundtrack was a plus a bonus it really adds to that narrative culturally in your mind like mm. you'll remember the movie in a much better light if the soundtrack was exceptional 
kind of, I don't really remember what happens, but the soundtrack was so epic that it will always be an extra half star in my mind. <laughs> like, if, if that makes any sense, yeah. it will always up it because it was such a immersive and such a powerful experience listening to that film. Tenet is more of an album than it is a movie for me now yeah, at this point. It's true. But same with Dune, same with, I mean... Harry Potter, very famous. Yeah. And those films were all great. They're all excellent five-star films. They feel like the soundtracks brought them up to like a five and a half star, <laughs> if that makes any sense. But it's just powerful. Music is the most powerful art, I think. The most yeah. potent. When we walked into this this church landmark that we went to on the weekend, that's what I was thinking about with, um, there's, a, there's a famous quote, which is that architecture is just frozen music. Music mm. is, is liquid architecture. And I was also thinking about how when you walk into certain architecture, it draws your, especially religious, it draws your gaze up immediately. Mm-hmm. And it, it, with the music in there as well, with like the, the hymns and the organs and everything, like it's designed to make you look up. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, not all lyrical music, but a lot of lyrical music, and especially a lot of modern lyrical music, is designed to, is designed for and by, like our our basest instincts mm-hmm. to make us look down, if mm. you will. And um, it's like, I know this is more philosophical than it is like about storytelling or or the real music of it, because people aren't religious for the most part or don't often believe in anything higher than human and there's a certain hedonism to the times and it's like this is all whatever but even if you don't believe in like in hymns isn't it just nicer it's like with the solar scene it's like you might think this is all a silly exercise it's like well the future's not going to be like this or whatever it's like i don't exactly always think the future is going to be like the solar scene mm-hmm. but isn't it just nicer to to dwell in it for a while mm-hmm. so it's like that with music as well I think. yeah dwell in the good stuff be aware of its impact on you Thank you for listening. Yeah, that's it.